Hello, everybody, and welcome to Shop Talk Show. This episode is sponsored by Majingo, M-I-G-I-N-G-O dot com. They do some really great, well-produced screencasts. Go check out them. They have a recent one on using Jekyll to build a static website. That's really cool. We'll tell you about that more later in the episode. And Environments for Humans, who put on really incredible conferences, both online summits and in-person, face-to-face conferences, and we'll tell you about one that's coming up soon uh, later in the episode. But for now, Shop Talk Show! Listening to the Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about front end web design and development. I'm Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyer. Hi, everybody. Those sounds we were making during our awesome theme song were gun noises because this is a special episode. You guys are totally familiar with these by now, all you people that have been listening to the Shop Talk Show since the beginning. It is a rapid fire show. Which means that no guests, no news, no links, no drama. Just me and Dave answering questions. That's all I got. My shoulders are just moving uncontrollably. I'm getting into it. (laughs) (laughs) Phil Thompson. First question, having a person. Oh, here we go. So, Phil, here's your audio question. Thank you for sending in audio questions. We love them. We think they're the future podcasting. Here we go. Hey, guys. I was wondering if you had some golden rules or tips that you believe that a freelancer or subcontractor should follow to protect themselves and their work when it comes to getting paid or stopping their code getting ripped off or as what's happened to me in the past, have your mock-up taken and given to someone else to build. Cheers, guys. Ooh, how can you... Protect yourself in in contracting, subcontracting like situations. Like we call this golden rule, which is do unto others as they would do unto you, right? Isn't that the golden rule? Or it's something like be a friend and then friends are friends. Yeah. Uh, don't be a jerk. <laughs> but the problem is even if you're a really good person in this industry sometimes, sometimes you'll be taken advantage of or bad things will happen to you. I think uh I think we've you know, we've talked about this a number of times, but I think the golden rule when it comes to freelancing and subcontracting work is to have a contract. So when if people don't pay you it becomes illegal for them to have done that to you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's kinda like subcontractor would imply that there's a contract involved. Uh, the BizCraft podcast would be a great place to like get really, really good advice on this. But uh, one thing I would say, um, especially in regards to like somebody not paying you or whatever, like you need to make that like written down. Or if like they just kind of fire you and they just like instead hire somebody else to code it out instead of you coding it out, like like 
maybe you build into your your contract a kill fee. So if they just quit engaging with you, they have to pay you whatever X amount, you know, a percentage of what they would have paid you anyway. So, um, cause you know, that's pretty standard fare, um, for, for stuff. And then, yeah, I, I would make sure you have that kind of in your contract as well. I don't do a lot of this work, but I do find it very interesting to talk about because I know that a lot of you listeners do, or you are freelancers, or uh, or whatever. And I, you know, it's not. I don't have no experience. I've definitely worked at agencies in the past. It's it feels weird to do this. I understand a lot of people's trepidation to it, and it and it feels like you're, you know, like you're like it's hard to come to somebody and be like, hey, can you read and sign this thing, please? And it's all this like legal stuff, and it looks like you're just trying to protect. I don't know. It's it feels like you're doing something wrong almost, and and, and you kind of got to get over that and get to the point where uh, you're not like this is like a it's like a positive thing getting someone to sign this because it really it protects both parties and it sets up this kind of mutual respect and there's just so many positive to this. So if you're feeling you know trepidatious or whatever, I'm not even sure if I'm using that word correctly, but you know what I mean. Like you're uh, about this, um, definitely like you know like just. <laughs> Try some steps to getting over it, you know, like just try it once or just. Yeah. um, uh, Other things like when you, you need to be sure you're writing proposals too that get signed off and, and make sure there's like a paper trail uh, for that sort of stuff. I, I listened to the bids bizcraft and that's why I mentioned them first is because the, you know, they, they're, I listen to them a lot, but they kind of talk about like email can be, legal fodder, um, from their understanding. So, um, that's kind of helpful too. So you got to make sure you get like sign off on, on, you know, the proposal. So if they say, you know, yes, you're, we're committing to this proposal and then your contract, which it should be attached to the staple to that proposal, uh, that, you know, they're signing basically an agreement of work for A to Z. And then on top of that, Make sure you get paid some up front. So different agencies have different amounts. Um, and But I think it's pretty standard for like a freelancer or in our industry to get paid up front. If you're coming from like a marketing-y sort of thing, there's they have these things called net 30s and net 60s and net 90s, which means you get paid like 30 days after completion or whatever milestone. Mm-hmm. Um, and – I mean, if you're in that situation, um, you're you're probably going to get ripped off unless you're a, an agency with big lawyers, you know. So that would be my I would I would get paid up front if possible a, a portion of it that you're comfortable with. So that way, if they up and leave you, it's like boom, you got to check in the bank. It gets them mentally committed to the situation too, though, and that has that has benefits beyond the money thing just kind of gets them in the mood of, of working on this website and, and they're, how they're kind of for real. You know, it's kind of like layaway, you know, like that's why businesses offered that because as soon as you've given them a hundred bucks towards this new leather couch that you're going to buy, you're like, you're in. Yeah. You're, you're probably <laughs> going to buy that couch. Layawaydesigners.com. <laughs> you can credit Shop Talk Show for that new right. idea. Uh, I was going to say also, ah, shoot. I'd lost it. I think you're in a good place. Uh, I mean, you you don't want to get ripped off, but a contract can save your life. That's about it. So, 
There you go. Next Andy question. McPhee asks, I am a designer developer who works on a tech team with backend developers. My expertise lies in HTML, CSS, and basic jQuery. At my company, our product is written in Ruby on Rails and Backbone.js. I spend all my time in .jst.ejs files working with HTML and Ruby code. I've gotten to the point where I'm comfortable with Ruby on Rails, but sometimes I'm not able to do just very basic things that I would normally be able to do on my own. For example, if a developer writes a piece of code that includes a Ruby tag, I either have to go to Google and figure out like how to how to do that, uh, like how to add a class or an attribute or something. Uh, this happens to me in Ruby too. You know, they're like there's like some form maker and it, it like is this big complicated thing, and you have to do like class fat arrow thing that's like adding class and attributes to these little rails helpers sometimes can be weird and then and then you go look at the code that it generates and it's just like it just added an attribute you're like why isn't this just html why does it have to be this fancy ruby way why anyway so that's the problem that he's seeing and backbone is another nightmare for him it's like i feel like i should know it but my js skills are limited to just kind of basic jquery so i can't like i just i'm not up to speed on all this stuff like why isn't some of this stuff just static html and it's like he's just i guess andy is just feeling a little a little trapped kind of that there's like all this complicated stuff going on that's making his job like really, really hard sometimes when like he knows how to do this stuff. It just seems like seemingly unnecessarily complex. You know what he's talking about? Yeah. So uh, there's, there's some things like there, there's some specific rails gems. I know uh, some designers kind of take <laughs> arms with like, I, I don't want to name and shame, but there, there's like form builders in uh, Rails, and, and basically you just say like for fields in my model, like my my uh, what's a good model? Let's say I have a database of companies, right? So I say for fields in companies, you know, echo the field name, like so field name. Uh, field description, field, you know, and it auto creates a form for you to fill out. Mm. Um, it's kind of a neat theory, right? Because it, it kind of me- means that your model is is both your database and like front end, like it'll make a form based on what your database structure is like. But it's really yeah, this yeah. model that sits in between those two things. Exactly. And so it's, there's also, it, what's cool about it from my perspective is like it, the form builder will kind of sniff out it's like if you in your database you called it a text field or or like a or a what is it is it yeah i think it's i haven't touched a database in a really long time but basically it's like a long endless description of text like a blog post it'll the form builders will automatically spit out a text area there which is what you wanted you know um or if it's just like a uh input type equals text it'll know that and figure that out or if it's a boolean it'll do a checkbox and so the, uh, they're really handy and and for developers it's like shortcut city man it's like boom <laughs> i <Yeah>. just <laughs> i just basically just drop in a block of code and it'll build out this epic form and if you've ever made a form by hand like you know you're like P class input label for input name you know it, it, like if, right. if you've ever like, built forms out a are form pretty by- verbose there's a lot of stuff in there 
especially if you're doing like rails and stuff like that. Cause you know, a, a blog post can have comments can have and comments can have certain authors associated to it. And, you know, uh, comments could even have like resources attached to them, you know? So you get like, you get like super fields that you have to like maintain. And that would be a nightmare to do by hand. So like, I'm going to side with your developers on that. Like you should probably come up to speed on the, like, on on these important things, your your backbone woes are a bit different because, um, like, yeah, backbone is mostly just JavaScript. So, uh, but it's not quite as easy as jQuery because, like, backbone you have to maintain a model and a view and a controller kind of, or you you have to like maintain all that inside backbone because um, backbone for. I hope I'm explaining this right. I haven't used Backbone on a project in the past, but I've seen a few demonstrations on it. It's sort of like Ajax everything, you know? And so it's it's a layer that sits in between your your front-end code and your backbone, your back-end code. So it's the in-between, and it kind of is a structure that sits in between there. Um, so it'll post messages and return values. It's kind of like Ajax post for every single field in your database kind of. I hope I explained that well enough for you guys. So um, it's not quite as like syntactically clean as jQuery. It's not as uh, sugar candied coded as jQuery, but it's uh, pretty like standard objects in that sense. So for JavaScript and stuff like that. So I, I think the best thing you could do, Andy, is maybe learn a bit more JavaScript uh, to get you through that. But I don't know. At the same time, I've heard people backing out of like a completely backbone architecture because it's so hard to maintain. So mm. I don't know, though. I don't know. There's some good points in there. Kind of I mean, Andy, you learned HTML and CSS at one time. You learned jQuery at one time. Sometimes this stuff is like, well, you're just going to have to step it up and learn some new stuff. You know, I know this is it's, it's weird, but sometimes it's worth it just to do to do some learning. Uh, and then, you know, and just and slowly go at it. You know, if you need a developer to help you, well, hopefully they taught you once and you kind of wrote it down somewhere or really kind of grok it so that so that next time it won't be such a big deal. But I do feel your pain there in some ways. I mean, this happens to all of us uh, for sure. A lot of times I'm like, you know what, I need a new I need a new route on CodePen or something. I just want to mock something up and I want to put it at like slash banana or something. Uh, you know, in in our architecture. Um, I want to make a real Rails route to do that, and I'm not much of a super great developer, so I kind of know what our routes file is like. I kind of can copy and paste some stuff in there, but then the new thing has to have a new view, and it has to have a controller all to itself, and I'm not sure, I'm not like really good at that type of thing, and I can go look at some other simple controllers, but it's again the thing I'm not just not that comfortable with, and it kind of bums me out sometimes as a as a designer. You're like, I just want a stupid route because I I want I want to get past this and get to the get to my proficiency. You know, I want to I want to stop spinning my wheels on dumb stuff, and uh, I can feel your frustration there. And uh, so it's just a mixture of of trying to deal with your frustrations and and learning. And I uh, Ruby is. Because it's so convention-based, 
you're going to end up, it's going to kind of click one day and it'll be like, oh, these guys are like all the same and they're pretty predictable in how, you know, how to add a class to a div or something like that. Um, so like really, these are also vetted tools, right? These aren't, this isn't, no, this is, it isn't stupid how they did it. Like all this stuff exists for a reason, you know, not that you said stupid. I did air quotes to myself, but like, (laughs) like nobody, you know what I mean? Like the, the, these things aren't like needless barriers. All that stuff kind of exists for a reason. So I I feel like Ruby will click for you. Like Backbone, again, that's kind of another deal. Um, But what I would say, the light at the end of the tunnel is, if you're learning this stuff, I mean, dude, you're a Ruby front-end developer who can do Backbone, like you're like in the Millionaire's Club champagne room, dude. So that's that's a good position to be in. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about your life too much if you had to learn all those. So I, I would light at the end of the tunnel is you're going to be a very valuable front end developer if you know that stuff. So that was that's what I would say. That's a very positive way to end this. Let's do another new question. Okay. Whoa. Okay. Next question is from Pierre. Lemion, and it's an audio question. Hi, my name is Pierre Lemoyne. I'm a web developer from Winnipeg, Canada. I have a question about M's and Retina, or high-definition displays. When using M's on a computer, it's a pretty safe assumption that the base unit of measurement is 16 pixels. However, with the change to high-definition displays, how will that affect M's? Will it mean if I'm using an iPhone, the base unit of measurement will actually be 32 pixels? And if I use an Android device, is it 24 pixels? Based on what I've been reading, it looks like a number of devices in the future will be using arbitrary pixel depths. Does this mean the base unit of measurement for M's is going to fluctuate depending on the device used? And a final thought, how do your REMs play into the high-definition situation? Okay. Uh, so, Chris, do you want to take this? I have some basic thoughts that you can expand upon because you usually have more to say about this M stuff yeah, than I ahead, do. But w- the basic thing is that um, as I've said in previous episode, M's and pixels are both rather arbitrary, right? They're just some number, and they just represent some size of something on a screen. There's no basis between either of those things anymore and reality, right? So whichever one you pick, just do it, and you can make it work, you know? Uh, it's just a matter of... of, of, of Kind of the philosophy of it all, and and here and this is what really drives home the arbitrariness of it, right? Is that all of a sudden now there's high definition displays, just because there's a high definition display, it's not like every website in the entire world went and been like, oh, well, if there, if it's you know 16 pixels on this site, make it 32 pixels on 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 high resolution displays. They didn't have to do that. That would nobody would have done that and it would have been a big problem on the web. So 16 pixels on a really low resolution display looks about the same size, literally physically sized on your screen as on a really high resolution display. The you know the so the underlying technologies just kind of do their thing and make them make them look about the same. So you don't have to worry about that so much. It's not like fonts all of a sudden are going to get really unreadably small just because the DPI of a display went up. Uh, exactly. So when you're right, so go. Yeah, you can take that. Uh, I was just going to say, like the the pixel is is a terrible measurement now, right? Um, but like 
when when you're talking about CSS and you're talking about pixels, you're talking about like pixel classic. It's it's you know a dot and and you know or or it's like one unit of measurement. It's a pixel and it's got some arbitrary size, but it's you know an iPhone one and an iPhone nine thousand or the iPhone five. Let's say they're 320 CSS pixels wide, okay? But they have a resolution, like a fidelity, a PPI or whatever, that retina screen is 620 pixels or 640 pixels wide. So that's where the confusion comes in. It just has a higher definition. Um, It's kind of like if you have a 1080p TV that is... I don't know, 9,000 pixels wide or whatever in a 1080p like screen that's like, I don't know, uh, 80 pixels or sorry, if you have a 1080p TV that is Mm -hmm. 80 inches wide in a 1080p TV that's 30 inches wide, like they're both 1080. They both have the same like CSS resolution. They just have different pixel densities because they can fit more stuff into them. So... I don't know. They have at least a minimum. It's sort of this weird thing. I don't know, man. There's not a great um, way to explain it. I wish, like, they had called, like, the resolution pixels. Like, they call it, like, whatever, like, R pixels or something like that, not (laughs) CSS pixels. But maybe CSS pixels are the actual problem. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So, Pierre, just, I mean, I just, I don't, when you're thinking about fonts, think think about how they work for you. How that how how development around them is going to go. How they work for your website, and don't think about don't think about um, displays so much. It's not really about that. Like whatever you whatever you pick and get looking good on your screen is going to work on other screens as well. Now now dealing with the size of that screen is a different issue. Um, you know, make sure that your fonts kind of. Uh, you know, like you may need to adjust font sizes for for small displays. You might be able to make the make the font size a little little smaller for a phone, just so that I don't know, your your measure stays correct. Now, just don't think you don't have to think about the resolution so much. The size of the screen and the resolution are are kind of different issues. And and right now, I think it's it may be changing based on like the actual body amount, but like one M is. Uh, well, one M like in a media query, like if I want to make it like at 80 M's wide, I want to do something. Uh, that's like literally times 16 right now. Most browsers don't even like consider M's to some degree. It's they just like divide by 16 or whatever. So I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't worry super hard. Um, and and just learn by doing is the most. Like once you see like on an old iPad and a new iPad how a 400 by 400 box is still the same size, it, it'll start to click like, oh, the, it's just fidelity, not not size basically. So mm-hmm. hopefully that helps you out there. So anyway, yeah. maybe we need new units of measurement. I don't know. Uh Maybe. Awkwardly enough, I've been researching this recently for an article. Uh, those H and W units that are in the source set tag, 
that I actually hate, but yeah. I hate them in the source set tag, but they actually kind of make a little bit more sense like at 100 W because whatever that is, <laughs> I'm going yeah. to do something. Um, that's actually kind of smart, you know, but, um, but it's not going to play out. There's nothing that else that supports that, you know? Well, it's essentially pixels though. So it's not really yep. a new unit. Yeah. So it's exactly, it's just, confusing pixels even further so it really is yeah that's a mess well hopefully the big new ones for text will be v vh and v vh vw and v min and and vh min or whatever the heck they are yeah and he asked about rem units rem units are purely well they're a great band and they are purely uh just a different style of m unit so they don't do anything different. They just reference a different root, the root M unit, which is your body tag. So that's kind of, that's all, right? I said that right. Okay, good. Well, next. <laughs> yeah, I'll do one here. Uh, let's see. Or we got three, we got three done, right? That's saying it's about time for a sponsor. We'd like to we'd like to we'd like to thank Environments for Humans, our longtime sponsor here on uh, the Shop Talk Show. They've been very good to us. I hope we're good to them too. Dave Scott is ukulele out. You know what that means? Uh, God, we've been pushing this for a long time, right? I hope I hope you guys are like, oh my God! Now he's not going to talk about Hawaii again. Yes, I am because I'm trying to get. Everybody who listens to Shop Shock Show to come. I feel like I've talked about this trip so many times with so many people. I just couldn't be more excited about it. Um, go to the URL if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Incontrolconference.com. I want to make sure I have that right. Right? It's the it's the whole thing spelled out. Right? Incontrolconference.com. It is. Oh, it's going to be so great! It's a it's the December second through fourth. I'm going to be doing a workshop there. I'm going to be doing a talk there. It runs back to back with another conference on December 5th called the CSS DevCon. A conference that's all about CSS. I don't think I've ever gone to one of those, especially not in purpose. You know, you go to these things and people talk about CSS, but they're not all about CSS. That's what the CSS DevCon is going to be for, which I'm totally stoked about. I'm giving the opening keynote. Dave, um, oh God, what am I talking about? Dave's going to be there too. Dave's going to be I'll at be both of these too. events. I'm going to be talking. Yeah. Talking about some stuff, some getting flexy stuff I've learned over recent Heck months. Yeah. So that's good. It was the master of flexiness. Uh, um, Dan Cedarholm's giving the closing keynote for CSS DevConf. Uh, master. Talk about the master. But yeah, in control and CSS DevConf. Uh, dot com both are going to be super super fun and I can't wait and it's in Hawaii which is going to be like the b- most amazing end of year possible and to go to that relax get some sun go home to my parents house um, afterwards in December in Wisconsin and I'll be all tan and they'll be all pasty I'll be like what's up <laughs> You're like hey is there surfing here in Wisconsin no oh, I'm a surfer now. <laughs> Jessica Hish is going to be there, who I've seen talk and is freaking hilarious, uh, and talks about her. What's that? I, I, I was looking at this website yesterday because I was like, "Hey, when when do I have to go to Hawaii again?" Because um, <laughs> I, I like know it, but then I forget it, and then I'm like, "Ah, yeah. jeez." Oh, but um, uh, the it's like every face you see on there, you're just like, "Whoa, whoa!" I know that I know like all these people, and they're all super freaking radical so uh, I, I mean mm-hmm. i don't know 
I, I'm, That's I, the situation that we're in right now. It's radical. I think it's a pretty s- sweet setup. So, and if you listen to the Shop Talk show, like most of these people have been on the Shop Talk show, even. So, uh, I mean, yeah. dude, CSS Dev Camp. There's even more people. It's multi-track. There's 20 speakers at CSS Dev Camp. Sick. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Let's do another one. Joe Schnell asks. Um, I want to load CSS conditionally, as in like a mobile.css file. Uh, and he's using WordPress, and he's using, you know, have you ever seen these functions in WordPress? Like when you're going to enqueue a script, a lot of times, you know, like loading jQuery the right way in WordPress, you don't just load up jQuery in the in the in your header file as just like a script tag. You just don't do that because uh, oftentimes other plugins will need to use jQuery. And how they do it is they enqueue the script up, which ultimately ends up outputting that script tag through the WP head function that goes up in your head. Now all of a sudden you got two copies of jQuery on your site uh, and that can be problematic. Not to mention, you know, if they're different versions, weird things can happen. jQuery was definitely not meant to run side by side with itself with different versions. You know, that can just be a problem. Okay, so now you understand what WP and Q script is, kind of. There's also a WP and Q style and it does the same thing, only it does it with, with style sheets. So it's like if you're loading a plugin, you can, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to go mess with somebody's theme. You can just enqueue the style through the, through either a plugin or the functions.php file. That's what Joe Snell here wants to do. He wants to enqueue a style. But he wants to be able to add uh, media attributes to that link that gets output. So you know that you can load like a mobile-only style sheet um, right through the link tag in the header by by using the media attribute on the link tag that says like handheld or you use like min width you know, or, or max width 800 pixels or something like that, and you can get it. So, so Joe is asking, I want to use WP and Q style, but I also want to output media attributes on it. Um, so did we, did we follow that? Yeah, I think so. So it's like WP and Q style because WordPress requires it and he wants to load two, but he wants to add the media attribute, like the, the media query stuff at the end of it. So. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, just I had to Google it. So I wanted to explain it so everyone understood. And then I was like, crap, I don't know if it can do that. And all I did, guys, was I Googled WP underscore and Q underscore style, which is the WordPress function for it. Uh, and the, and it, go, it takes you to WordPress.org's codex, which is kind of like their documentation. That's what they call documentation at WordPress. And it takes five... Um, parameters. It's a function. It takes five parameters. It takes the name of the style sheet. It takes the source where the where that style sheet lives. It takes dependencies in case this style sheet um, should depend on another style sheet that should be loaded first. You can reference that there. It, uh, it allows you to um, add a version number to it. So in case you are working with caching and stuff and need to change, it'll just uh, add a, a query string to the end of it uh, uh, saying what version it is. And the fifth Parameter is the media parameter when you can literally put a string there that will output in the the link tag itself so you can control the media attribute from the WP Q style function. We'll put a link to this in the show notes along with this question. Yeah, no, I think the the codex is going to tell the truth here, I think. And, um, yeah, so instead the the codex will give the... um, the example they say, you know, you could write all screen, handheld, print in there. Um, so what you got to do is just say at media screen and 
min parentheses min width equals you know or min width colon or yeah min width colon forty point five m uh, end parentheses and that that'll spit it out, man. So I think you're in good shape. Yeah, I was worried there. I was like, ah, crap, I forgot to Google this before the show. But there's a perfect answer to your question, Joe, and that should work out for you. Now, what is what is, what is media screen comma handheld? Do you even know how, how what is the support of handheld? Does, is it just a keyword that maps to something specifically? Have you ever used that? Uh, that that's old school. I mean, maybe Joe it- has a specific use for it, but that was sort of like the – that was back in like the WAP days, you know, when when people were making WAP sites, um, handheld was out. There's also a TV one, yeah. you know. But- that makes a little more sense to me, actually, in the modern day. But the, that's weird. Remember how we always used to do projection too? Like, what if yeah. the web is on a projector? Don't you want to? D- right. But the <sighs> thing is, like, projectors were like, oh, no one's using our thing, so like. But I'm just going to use screen, and TVs are the same. Like no one's using TV, so I'm just going to use screen. So there you go. I mean, everything's just using screen. I think it's really. I don't even use screen anymore. Usually, I just go at media max width six hundred. I don't care if it's. I don't care what it is. Screen and everybody with screen and in their in their media queries. I think print print style sheets don't necessarily. it, like I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I know. You, you, you might not want your. Well, print style sheets sometimes are just like I don't understand me queries. Peace out. So <laughs> I don't know though. So it's been a while since I ran into that. So. God, I hope I hope like HP or or Epson or something doesn't get too big for their britches and decide to start like honoring those in some printer. The out come the blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just it'll be we like we need to be supporting printers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we don't have enough oh, stuff to worry about these days. There's going to be like epic t- tables being like what issue, pr- what printers support what media queries. Yeah, issue nine thousand Fitvids does not support printer HP ninety five oh two printers. Oh, I feel like yeah. I'm getting old. I might have to retire before that happens. Thinking about <laughs> Oh, I'm getting just lost nope. a clump of hair. Right. But, but if we don't, if we jump on it, I'll get all that all that juicy blog traffic of people trying to get ahead of the game, Coyer. All right, somebody a guest blog post. All right, Seth Etter, what do you got for us? Do you want to spin okay. that? Next question, Seth Etter. Hey guys, I'm in the process of building a Rails application that's going to be heavily powered on the front end by JavaScript. My question is, what's the typical workflow for this kind of project? Should I build the interface first using fake data and JSON files? Thanks. Oh, what should you do? Um, you got any advice? I mean, CodePen's well, pretty heavily JSON passing, huh? Uh, I don't know that that's true. It's a... Uh, well, maybe it is. Well, so <laughs> no. I guess what I would say, Seth... Um, so, I mean, backup, we we're talking about backbone and stuff like that. J- Backbone's kind of the prototypical how to communicate asynchronously over JavaScript with the, the backend. Um, that's kind of the situation. Uh, one thing, if you're, hmm, I guess if you want to get, like, let's say the backend is not built out in any manner and you want to get, you know, very, 
ahead of the game. Uh, yeah, you could just start with static JSON files um, to, to build that out for sure. Um, one thing I've seen, and this is what some smart dudes are, are starting to recommend, is like you totally decouple the the back end from the front end. So follow me here. So you have your Rails app, which you know you can save and you can you know you can do your CRUD stuff, create, read, uh, uh, whatever. Delete, delete. Update, delete. There you go. I was like, undo? <laughs> so why would you do that? Okay. But so create, read, uh, update, delete. Um, so those, those are your primary functions. Uh, so you have the Rails app that does all that. It has your models, your controllers, and it has views, but the views are only JSON. So it only spits out JSON and it only accepts JSON. It's just like... I'm just a JSON machine. That's all that I do. And then you have another app, like at another URL or whatever, uh, that's basically your front end. And in the web app is just like, oh yeah, I post JavaScript to my my buddy server, and my buddy server returns me JavaScript or uh, success or fail, and that's how I live my life. So like, they're two kind of units that that talk to each other. And why this is popular is because like mobile design and native apps and stuff like that. If you have, you know, your iPhone app is basically just a, another kind of front end that talks to the to the the Powers House, the the Rails app, and they just say, "Hey, buddy, how do I do this?" And it's like, "Here's some JSON." Hey, I'm sending JSON. How do I? What should I do with this? And then it sends JSON back. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of we're getting into the stage where we, you have one back end in the cloud it, that's so cool but it's in the cloud and then you have these like multiple front ends uh and they're different kinds of native one is web one is iphone one is android you know uh stuff like that that's i mean kind of the the way things are headed um that's how uh npr does a lot of its cool stuff that's how facebook is kind of working it right now so yeah, I think I think that's sort of the the way things are headed. Does that Absolutely. did that sound about right? It did. So you know, so Seth, yes, it's okay if you want to, you know, fake some data with JSON and and grab stuff that way. It actually might be good because it may it might inform backend work later. So it sounds like the the position that you're in is that you're ready to to design. You know, you're ready to get into how this app works and your backend isn't ready yet. So certainly press forward and, and, and get it done. And, and, and in fact, you may be doing yourself a big favor here because I'm actually quite a big fan of, of kind of design driven development of how should this thing work? Let's get some UI going. Let's, let's, let's figure out the, the, you know, the, what it does, you know, from a design perspective first and then make the backend match rather than, you know, sticking a developer on it and kind of just loosely explaining how it should work and just letting the, de- the, the developer do that. And then having the, you know, the classic like terrible statement of like, let's just get the designer in there and have them make it look pretty. You know, that's not how development should be done. Certainly on web apps, you know, the designer should be kind of leading the charge and being, you know, not that, not that backend people don't have any sense of UX because I've worked with plenty of them that have a great sense of UX, but I kind of think that's, you know, it's, it's more along the designer's 
attitude and, and theoretically area of expertise is to figure out how things work. And, then, and if you can lead the charge and then make the back end follow what you've created and your vision, you may be doing yourself a big favor there. Seth, let's do a next question. Next question is from uh, Kirk Grover. It's an audio question. Here we go. Hi, guys. It's Kirk Grover in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for answering my question. I was wondering, what is the best way to size icon fonts in a responsive design? Should we stick to pixels, use something like M's or percentages, or is there another way to have icon fonts grow or shrink gradually with the resizing of the window like we would with a 100% width image? Would SVGs work better for this? Thanks. Ah, so how do you we make talk a lot about M's, connect? don't we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a very interesting one though. At first the first time I read this question, which he Kirk did us the favor of sending us both an audio question and the written explanation of it, which was nice. Uh I, I was like, well, it's you know, you said it yourself. It's a f icon fonts are are fonts. So you size them with the same things that you size fonts with, which is, you know, pixel and apps and rems and percentages and VH and VM and all that stuff. Uh, how do you do it generally? How well, I mean, so usually, like, let's let's take the Shop Talk Show for an example. Um, we have a little icon font, you know, up top with uh, by our navigation, and um, so those are the the icon font is M sized based on the navigation. So in the navigation, should it increase in size, the icon font will also increase in size. Um, so in that way, we're not trying to have it behave like an image where it scales, you know, like where it's like ever expanding or whatever. Um, uh, so SVG would probably work better because SVGs will behave more like an image. You can actually embed them in an image tag mm -hmm. and make them embed, like behave exactly like an image. Um, but there is this interesting thing about icon fonts, like and, and GitHub addressed this. They they actually made two versions of all their their icons. Um, one is a 16 pixel version, and one's a 32 pixel version, and they're all inside the icon font. So that way, they could get kind of better fidelity um, from at, at different sizes, and they're not using. To my knowledge, 32 and, and 16 explicitly, but they just kind of like they, – they Is were, that right? Hey, They're different vector paths? Yeah. Even? So yeah. So mm. in, it's pretty intense. I mean like that's like you know fun for guys like Raji who like to uh, you know tweak the minor – like zoom into 6400% and like tweak you know one pixel. But um, That's interesting because a lot of times you think of icon fonts and you're like, well – you don't do multiple version. These aren't, you know, because the, the case can be made very easily for icon, like graster on how you can't just take a really large image and shrink it really small. Like I've seen blog posts yeah. where it's like this little beautiful typewriter and then they shrink it a bunch of times, just, just met, just literally just drag it smaller. And it really like gets all blurry and gross and crappy, but then they'll show, you know, the 16 by 16, the 32 by 32, the 64 by 64 that were like handcrafted by a designer and got all pixely. And it's, and they look way better, obviously, right? So you put more work into it and it looks better. But I have never thought of that concept extending to 
icon fonts, you know, so that you might want to simplify the vector path of that particular character because it will literally somehow look better, smaller. You know, I always think that, you know, you got a vector path. It'll just work good all the time, you know, but it may not. Well, and, and for the, like for icon fonts, usually they're simple shapes, you know, like mm-hmm. the house is a square, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But look, we have Texas, we got California and stuff on our, in our, in the icon font for shop talk show. Maybe those would be good candidates for simplifying at smaller size. That's probably true. Absolutely. Um, but what's, you know, what's neat there is like, you know, we have the house for the home, you know, like mm-hmm. you could, uh, that's not getting any simpler. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like, if you got bigger, you could whatever put like a dog in the window, you know, uh, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. And it works great, like getting bigger and adding more crap in. Or you'd probably have to design it the opposite way. But like, you know, if you're scaling down a house with a dog in the door, like, then it's gonna look awful. <laughs> it's just gonna like. Who, I don't know, who pooped on your door? (laughs) (laughs) Kirk brings up an interesting point here, though. There is no way to size a a character just with native CSS that is the same size as its parent width, right? There's Uh, no, like, make make one text. Yeah, right. Other than like getting fancier with JavaScript, so you may look into that if you're Kirk. If you're interested in uh, having one character kind of just be as wide as its parent is, Fit Text may be able to help you with that, which would be interesting. It, again, it, which is you know, I always I keep mentioning this on shows, but the the VW um, mm-hmm. um, unit. You know, you can say, you know, one VW is going to be 1% as wide as your browser windows. You can probably, and then if you know that your container is 30% wide, then 30 VW is going to be as wide as that container is. So that will help us in the future do this type of thing. Or yeah, just use SVG like Dave said. And, which is fine because you already have it in an icon font, which means that you can open up Illustrator, type that character, and you know hit Command Shift O or whatever it is in Illustrator, and you and you got that, and then output it as SVG. Now, I should mention that SVG is really easy to use. You guys, it's not. You know, I've kind of just recently had this kind of relevation because I feel like it used to be more complicated than this. You know how you can use a JPEG or a ping? Those things can be. It can just be .svg, and it will just use SVG. Or you can say background image is blah, blah, blah dot JPEG. You can just do background image blah, blah, blah dot SVG. It's that easy to use. It's not like you have to like embed this weird XML stuff. And like, it's just a format and you can just use it. You know? Yep. 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 I'm going to start using it more and more. I used it. I just replaced the, uh, the graphic and the header of CSSTricks.com. It used to be this little like tree thing, but Treehouse has kind of um, deprecated that. Now they use this little frog hand thing as their main brand. Ah. And that little that little guy up there is is like a, like a you know like point five k SVG file that looks phenomenal at all sizes. You know, I could probably throw it in the icon font for CSSTricks, but you know, yeah, uh, I have yet to I have yet to kind of do that. SVG. I- pretty crazy sick they're cool and then you know like you can use them as backgrounds too some like some browsers may have a problem with it but like yeah multiple background svgs you know like you're talking about like layering vectors on top of vectors like that's sick 
Oh, that's a good point. Maybe we could someday we could have like multicolor icons from it, you know, because that's one of the things about yeah. icon fonts right now is they're really just single color. And, you know, you can use some tricks to get some gradients and shadows and stuff in there, but not, not multicolor. That would be cool. Yeah. I look forward you to have some you seen- like old school screen printing tricks to do that. That would be a cool experiment. Yeah. That was a pretty cool idea for people. Sure, like some change some opacities and even some blending modes and stuff that is, are coming to CSS. That would be yeah. fancy. Yeah, SVG image stacks will be cool someday too. So when uh, someday you'll be able to turn off layers in SVG, like you can have layers in Illustrator file, for example, and that way all of the you can instead of having like a hundred little SVGs all over your site, you could have one SVG that is like sprite.svg, and you'll be like, okay, and when I'm using it here, turn on only layer seventeen, which will be that layer. So then we're we're being really efficient with them. Also, that's going to be a hot day. Yeah, no, that's going to be pretty cool because um, that's going to expedite the whole like that's going to expedite the whole icon font process. Basic, you know, you just your whole website's in one uh, one SVG, you know, that you're putting right. over. So enough. That's going to be fonts can be SVG too. Maybe your whole font could just be one layer. Oh man, the possibilities are crazy. Yeah. SVG is rad. So, okay, uh, let's do a sponsor, Majingo, M-I-J-I-N-G-O.com. Screencasts, inter- really intermediate-level screencasts, kind of above and beyond super, super basic stuff. It's kind of more like for Shop Talk Show listeners, you know, you guys that have already demonstrated that you care enough about the web to listen to an hour-long podcast about two nerds talking about the web. These screencasts are probably perfect for use. Um, they're not free, right? These are these are these are ones that are really well produced screencasts, you know, not like the junk on CSS Tricks where I'm like, watch me screw up for 45 minutes. These are, you know, perfectly, <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, they're they're made by professional people here trying to explain exactly what's what's going on here. So the the most recent one as of this screencast that is really really cool is called Static Websites with Jekyll, J E K Y L L, which is a static website generator, which we've talked about occasionally here on CSS or on Shop Talk Show, uh, which, you know, so static meaning that when you deploy it out to your website, these are just, it's just, they're just HTML files. There's no database. So it's just, they're really fast. They're really secure because there's nothing to hack. And so you do all the like processing of that static website locally using Ruby, I think. It's just Ruby, right? It's not Rails or maybe it's Rails, but I, I don't know. It, it just, it runs local or maybe it's its own thing. I don't even know. But I could find out if I watch this, which I should, I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to buy this. I keep talking about it. I haven't actually watched it yet. Oh, dude, $9. Don't, it, it's nine bucks. Buy it. Doing it right well, now. I mean, I think it's totally worth it. Um, he's also got like, you know, things like Markdown tutorials, you know, which you may know Markdown, like you've used it on something, but like, does your boss know Markdown? Would your life be better if your boss knew Markdown? Uh, hell yeah, it would. So, (laughs) (laughs) like, and Expression Engine, Ryan is like an EE pro, uh, does work for Happy Cog. I mean, like, dude, there you go. Like, if you're learning Expression Engine, if you want, like, kind of a, a really powerhouse CMS, there you go. So, and he built that whole site on Expression Engine. He built it all. Yeah, he, it, he this is an EE on, site. 
So you're saying e site with an e e commerce backend, just like I mean, nice. simple as dimples. <laughs> is that phrase people say it is. I don't know, but I'm dim- yeah. I mean, so like, yeah. I mean, if you want to sell, buy and sell goods over your own thing that's not Magento or something nightmarish like that, uh, I shouldn't totally diss Magento, but man, EE's your your bread and butter there. So anyway, totally recommend it. I'm on a Markdown Crusade just because we're mentioning this because he's got a. I just looked at a funny GIF. Uh, 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 CSS Tricks comments now are Markdown enabled. CSS Tricks forums are now Markdown enabled. It really is nice once you really just like get into the spirits of it. Because now I've been using it on GitHub. You know, all the like the like the the README files on GitHub are Markdown. There's the like when you comment on stuff on GitHub and when you do issues and stuff, that's all Markdown. Like it's just. You know, there's Markdown plugins so you can write WordPress things in it. I'm sure there's a Markdown plugin for Expression Engine. It's just a really good language for just writing stuff out. I, I like HTML. That's fine. I'll write in HTML forever. But like when you're just trying to write, you know, you're just like trying to get an idea out or whatever, just like the ability to make links and to block quote and to post code and all that stuff is all just way easier in Markdown. And I'm just on this like, on this, on this, on this crusade to get the whole world to, to use it. Not, and it's, I'm not, you know, people have been on bigger, longer crusades about Markdown than me. I'm just, I just happen to be on it right now because I, I, I don't know. It's, it's sweet. And if you want to learn it and like, you know, get on the bandwagon with me here, there's a Majingo screencast for learning all about Markdown, which I'm going to get to because it's, it should be, you know, I should know everything in the world, but I would hate it if there was one tiny fact about, <laughs> about Markdown yeah, that, that I did You're missing no. in your crusade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's good. No, anyway, thanks so much to Majingo for uh, sponsoring the show. Go check them out. Majingo, M-I-J-I-N-G-O dot com. Next question. Benjamin Solomon writes in. He says, I am a web developer with a dirty secret. Go on. I use Adobe Dreamweaver for all my web programs. Not... No, not the WYSIWYG, but the great text editor behind that. I've tried using TextMate, Coda, Sublime, etc., but I always found myself spending time searching for plugins to duplicate Dreamweaver's built-in functionality like code completion from multiple languages, even frameworks like jQuery and WordPress in the same file. The cost of Dreamweaver is prohibitive, but not if you use like uh, Adobe CS Web Premium or whatever. Right, you bought the bundle. Yeah, which you should. You shouldn't mm-hmm. buy those a la carte, in my opinion. But anyway, uh, I keep in mind uh, – I want to keep an open mind. So my question is, am I missing something completely that makes these other editors great, or is it that they can't get past the WYSIWYG stigma? I know it's a trendy product to hate with code completion plugin support, built-in FTP editor, etc. I find it to be very productive for me. So well, amen, Benjamin. Weaver, Fail town. So that's his question. No. You know what this WYSIWYG thing that he's talking about? I don't even think they have that anymore. I think that's gone. I think the Dreamweaver has, yeah, I think, I think that, well, I don't, I, I can't guarantee that, but I, I think so. And, and any of the people that I know who take Dreamweaver seriously now, 
um, does it. You know, Greg Ruiz used to work at at Dream at, at Adobe and was always pushing, not pushing it, but just he used it and liked it and would always show it on stage. Um, Dave McFarland, who's been on this show, who's on the Non-Breaking Space podcast, has books on Dreamweaver. He, you know, he uses it to teach his classes, I imagine. Um, it's not bad software. It's good software, really. It's it has a bunch of good features in it. A lot of a lot of people don't use it. Number one, because it's freaking expensive, right? Like if you just have it anyway, sure, that's cool. But like a lot of developers, you know, are used to their cheap and free stuff, so don't you know, don't buy thousand dollar software to to write code in, especially. Uh, they don't like all the panels and stuff. You open it up and there's a million features and stuff, but, uh, they just, you know, a real, I feel like hardcore devs just like, you know, they like a black window with a file browser on the left of it or whatever. (laughs) That's just, they just like that, you know, like get out of my way software. I know what I'm doing. So I think that's where it comes from. But if Benjamin's saying he likes it, he's productive in it. Why would we ever, why would we rain on Benjamin's parade here? I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's bad. Um I think though like historically like the it the WYSIWYG was the problem. I mean it, it would just yeah. put in junk code, junk CSS like, you know, and you'd you, even today, you know, you get handed files from this and, and it's just this like uh just you know, yeah. mud like Layer class A zero underscore F five. You know, I honestly like think that's gone. It has a WebKit preview in it, which can be a little weird because I know, like, well, like, what is it using? Is it using your native Safari one, or is it shipping with something weird? And like, I wouldn't trust that a ton. But that's not. It's not. You know, it's not awful, especially if you're not doing. Isn't that like cutting what stuff. everyone talks about? They want a WebKit enabled design machine. So, I don't yeah, know. right. Like it's closer to that than a lot of stuff. I would say. The Dreamweaver is worth checking out again. I'm not sure I'm going to get on it tomorrow or anything, but uh, it, it definitely has some like some snippet saving stuff, which could be useful. You know, I know Coda has that too, and I know a lot of people that really like that, like you know having your own little triggers and stuff and all little snips of code that it can save. I know that's built into Dreamweaver. Uh, God, it has some other cool. You know, FTP might be good, although I'm I'm not a big fan of you guys, um, as you'll know. Just live editing stuff in FTP or even publishing directly from local, you should be using version control, but whatever. Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna crap on Dreamweaver here. I think if, especially if you're already productive in it, uh, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. But also, like, how, how is it find and pro, here's the things that I really need in a text editor, right? I need find and project that is just incredible. <laughs> I can search my entire project for a three character thing. Uh, and and return me results like in one second of all the different files that it's in. So if it yeah. if it can't do that, which TextMate um, in before it went to this new, I haven't used the new version a whole lot, but TextMate one used to be dog all slow on that, and then Sublime Text two came out and it just does find and project just super lightning amazing fast. That's necessary. So that's kind of one of those reasons why I can't, like, does, does Cody even have Find and Project? It might, but I'm not. It, it does, but I'll be honest, that was part of the reason I broke up with Coda, because, like, <laughs> finding a file is yeah. excruciating. So. 
Find in uh, Project's a big deal. And then Command-T in, in, in Sublime is really cool, too. A lot of times my brain knows where what file I need to be editing is faster than I can like click to it or, or navigate to it. I'm like, oh, i got to change the color of an H2 tag. I know that's in my underscore typography.scss file. I'm just going to hit Command-T and type T-Y-O, and it'll probably be the first result because it has some kind of mind-knowing. It's just amazing. And then you just scroll down. You, you know, you tap down arrow, return, and then that file is open. It has that kind of like jump to file capability that like my brain can process really quickly. Like those kind of like little little features like that are more important to me. So I like Sublime Text too, um, but whatever. You know, if you're product yeah. like I was saying, productive, do it. Well, and people people love their code editors, and like they'll stay with it forever as long as it's working for them. You know, like that's mm-hmm. not to. I say this without judgment, like that's like the java guy mentality because like java dudes have to use like eclipse you know and so they they just yeah "Yeah, i'm using this for the rest of my life and and that's cool uh but like uh you know if you get into you know there's also toolers these are types of people who like to you know tweak everything they're like uh epic fail this this has a one pixel border i'm gonna remove it you know like so that's where like Thing like if you're unimpressed with the design of Dreamweaver, like there's going to be tweakers and toolers who like have to build out their own code editor theme, you know, and that's where Sublime Text comes in. So it's just different personalities, I think. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the old school guys use BB Edit still, which is probably yeah. fine, but like it seems like way old school to me. I bet if I used it now, I could probably get used to it or whatever. But that just seems like wow, really. <laughs> And that come out yeah. in like 1990. <laughs> anyway, well, also, maybe that's I would a good say thing. This. I've got I got one more point. Okay. So the free editors. So Sublime Text is basically free. Like it's free to get going on. You know, um, Simultron was also like that, but that wasn't very good. Um, but like, what if you look at like a a kid who's just starting out these days? Chances are they're using Sublime Text. So these like eager young guns, they're probably making really cool stuff, you know, uh, in inside these these tools. So uh, I mean, be on the lookout for them to rapidly advance because they've got such a higher adoption. It's it's like a easy gateway entry, you know. That's my kind of yep. point of yep. view. But anyway. Next question. Andrew Hathaway asks, I want to start getting some freelance work. I've recently asked, I've been recently asked, what what are your hourly rates? How much do you charge? However, I have not actually done any freelance work yet. So he's looking at getting his first freelance job. I'm 16 and I've just broken up, just broken up from my last year of high school. That's funny. What I wonder, he must be, do they say that in the UK? Just broken up be. from my last year at high school. It does. It doesn't sound like he's given up on high school. It just maybe that means if, he's if out for the summer. Maybe he has. Okay. Let's. Oh, there you go. Let's say that. Or you know, they get into like O levels and stuff like that in the UK. Let's pretend Andrew's in the UK. Okay. So, uh, so and he's just saying. So my professionality level isn't very high because he's only sixteen and he hasn't done any freelance yet. He hasn't had the experience in which to be professional. I guess. Um, so what should we say, Andrew? How much? What is? What is? What does we tell Andrew to tell people that are asking him? What are your hourly rate and how much do you charge? So, I've been working on a formula. 
Okay. Half your age plus seven. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is perfect because you can date under the age of 14. <laughs> um, no, okay, so take your age, times it by two, and then. Uh, I don't know, times it by the number of years of experience you have, which would be one. So $32. That's my final answer. (laughs) (laughs) And if you are 100 years old and you've been working for 50 years, you'd make like five grand an hour. That would be (laughs) or something. (laughs) Yeah. I like your formula. I forgot you were working on that. That's perfect, though. And 32 sounds kind of right, actually, for you, Andrew. Uh, bear in mind that like you're not charging for every single second of everything, you know. Like I feel like those numbers, they sometimes they feel high. It, uh, it's 32 is very low for somebody like uh, <laughs> Dave or I, but I'm sure it sounds like quite a bit of money to somebody who's, um, you know, has never done a job before. And certainly when you're looking at making like seven dollars an hour or something at McDonald's, 32 seems pretty good. Um, but uh, you know, not all of that time is directly billable work. You know, it's it's whatever phone calls and and preparatory work and stuff. I would also say that you may be too, a little too young to do the hourly thing. I, I would think if I was hiring someone that young, that I would be more apt to pay by the project than I would be for hours, just because I'm like. You know, you know, whatever, Andrew. I'm sure you're a you're a very astute child or whatever, but you're still a kid. You know, like I don't I don't necessarily trust you yet to be like super accurate with your hourly timings and stuff like that. I'd I'd be I would be more comfortable hiring you if you're like, hey, you want to make a website for my dog or whatever? <laughs> I don't know for my for my cafe. Um, I'll yeah. pay you eight hundred bucks to do it or something like that. I think you're probably more in that territory. Uh, than the hourly world just yet, and then maybe when you maybe in a few years when you have some of this stuff under your belt, that the hourly thing might work better for you. But I don't know. I just get that gut feeling. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I think at, at your age, I think that the hourly rate thing might be a little weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I would just have one, you know, and, and just chuck it out there and just see what it's like. I mean. Uh, and you're going to win some and you're going to lose some, you know, and you're going to learn real quick what doesn't work. And so, you know, so if you're just like, oh, I'm a hundred dollars an hour and then somebody's going to be like, eh, no, you're not. Peace out. And like, you didn't get that job. So, uh, that's a, bummer. yeah, that's but, a bummer though. Cause Andrew's probably not swimming in opportunities like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would start low and like plan to build up probably somewhat rapidly over the course of a year. Because you're going to find out real quick you need software like Photoshop, which is $800, you know, and that would be like a whole website to pay for that, you know. Um, so you're going to like, you know. I want to do this. To, I've been, like, this has been on my mind for a while. I want to do the breakdown of of what, it, what the, the cost to get like a really premium design and development station up and ready to go because I feel like it's a lot, but it's not that much. And so I was at the, and what sparked my mind is I was at the, um, like the WordPress state of the word thing in San Francisco or whatever at WordCamp San Francisco. And Matt Mullenweg had some numbers about what the average, like what, uh, like a freelance WordPress gig is like. And it like, it was like the, at the low end was like two grand and the high grand was 
five or something like that. It was really, it was, it was a lot. And I was like that for those kind of dollars, you could sink one job or maybe, you know, maybe one job, maybe two jobs and have a really super ultra premium setup with great, a great computer with just loaded with great software. Uh, and then you're, you're pretty much good to go for like years and years. So I feel like this, like always looking for free tools thing, is a little. I mean, maybe I'm short-sighted, or maybe you know, like I don't have the complete picture here. But I feel like there's so much hemming and hawing over or the cost of computers and software and stuff. Like when it, when computers and software are, are 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 the tools, are the hammer and nails of your business, it's it's actually fairly low costs. Yeah, you know, compared to well, I was I was gonna. I'm in the process of like, um, you know doing like business stuff for myself and, and like figuring stuff out. And, uh, I kind of calculated like my monthly cost of being a web developer because it was just like, well, cool. God, I got all this stuff. I don't even know how much I'm actually spending, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, and, in between what like, is a couple know, hundred bucks at least I'm sure. Yeah. It's about like, depending on the situation, like shop talks different. It's like, we've got overhead for like, you know, hosting or yeah. whatever, but sure. like, um, but in general, it's, general stuff, like it's about GitHub. 600 something a Holy year. Cow. I think it's, oh, a I think year. it's I thought you said a year, no, not a month. That would be insane. Uh, but like a year. So, um, you know, but maybe it's 600 to a thousand a year, depending on how you're doing like Photoshop, if you're doing like the creative suite sure. or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, so are you guess, comfortable with that? Or are you thinking that's, that's fair or low or high or how do you feel about that number? I mean, it comes out, I'm getting like software as a service, um, a little tired of these things. Like when people are like, Hey, I've got a software as a service application. I'm like, ah, that's dumb. But, uh, but there's things they're, that, you know, they're laughing at you all the way to the bank, man. I know they're just like, I'm taking his money. Um, <laughs> but there's, but there's, you know, stuff like a, a dribble account, you know, like I love that. I'm going to have that, you know, mm-hmm. there's stuff like a, a GitHub account. I gotta have that, that for all my like personal private projects. That's like absolutely inseparable. Dropbox got to have it. Um, you know, there, there's so many things. And Where's you mine? Know, I made a list. Let's go through like, it for fun. What is the, <laughs> yeah, do you I've have a list like too? A post, I've got a post worked up. So let me see if I, I can find it. Find mine too. Hopefully. Uh, you know, I started a thing, a blog <laughs> folder. <laughs> GitHub uh, for sure, right? I pay for oh, Vimeo Pro because now I have this uh some videos that need to be uh branded and only embedded on my site and stuff. I pay for browser stack because it's a really good tester tool. And then it has a bunch of mobile testing stuff and checking old IE and stuff like that. You can do it right through the browser. I pay for that. I pay for a FreshBooks account because I invoice people sometimes and I want to be able to do that in like two clicks. Uh, I don't need to track time, otherwise I would use Harvest because they're cool, but just, <laughs> they are a sponsor of the show. But I actually just, in all honesty, use FreshBooks at the moment. Uh, I would I would absolutely pay for Wufu, but I don't have to because I used to work there for a long time, so I get an account there. Uh, I pay for Beanstalk, which is a Git repository that has deployment, so I use that. Uh, Media Temple sponsors CSS Tricks, so I don't have to pay them, but I would because they have really good hosting. So there's a couple I woulds in there, uh, but you know, I'm just saying... Uh, I pay for Typekit, 
I pay for Groove Shark, even though I don't use it. I pay for Netflix, Hulu, and I buy stuff off iTunes. It's not really related to development, but it's a web app that I give money to. Uh, I have simple storage that I pay for every month, Amazon S3. I pay Gmail a little bit because I have to up my storage because it just was too, I had too much crap in my email. I pay Dropbox. Uh, NetDNA is the CDN for CSS Tricks. Again, that's I would because I, I mention them once in a while, which is they give me a free account too. Uh, I have a Boingo account, so when I go to airports and crap, I can use their Wi-Fi. Uh, I was like, geez, get a lot of use out of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that the, the 4G or the LTE iPhone will make me, allow me to cancel that, but we'll have to see. Uh, I pay for Flickr Pro and I pay for Dribble. That's my whole list. Man, I can't find my list, but yeah, it's sort of the same. I mean, it's Dropbox, RDO, um, yeah. GitHub, stuff like that. I mean, you know, and then, but all the and type kit, you know, stuff like that. They're going to, it's, you know, you don't have to have them, but I think they're really good things to have, you know? So, oh no, it's interesting. We should start around. I think I'm going to do this on to. this and yeah. Yeah, let's start around. Cool. You do it, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Let's do it. That'll be fun. Uh, we could do like a calculator. <laughs> I'm sure. going to use JavaScript. Well, we, have to, well, we should agree on some, like, what it has to be, like, stuff for, like, building websites, right? So I think my Gmail thing counts, but Netflix wouldn't count because that's just me watching movies, right? Let's have it be yeah. related to work, kind of. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like, Dribble probably, I guess, wouldn't fit in there, but, you know. Maybe, though. Like, what if you're a freelancer, though, and then it really would? Because it's hard. you of, get work. I would say it does just because it's about design, you know, which is part mm-hmm. of our world. Uh, but if it was something like Flickr, maybe not, because that's just, it's not part of our jobs, whereas Dribble is kind of. This is very well, relevant to me, though, and I hope this takes off, though, because we are. Um, and I don't think this is any surprise. I don't think I'm like annoying my partners on this, but we are make we are in the process of building um, CodePen Pro or whatever, uh, and and we're going to have a monthly cost to it. And there's going to be a ton of well, <laughs> what I'm thinking and saying is is a ton of uh, really cool, compelling features. So it'd be interesting to know like what people are are willing to pay for and and how much they on average spend on the web and and stuff like that. So we can you know make sure that we're in line with that. I mean, I have we have done plenty of thinking about this already, but it'd be interesting to know. No, and no, I'm not going to tell you what the features are yet. You're going to have to wait for a little while for that. They are awesome though. Man, I'm waiting around for that. That'll be good. I'm I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be something because I use. I hecka use CodePen even for like sending stuff to clients even. So, yeah. I can't get them. They're cool. I can tell you offline though. Sorry, audience. Yeah. Uh, All right, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Nick, I think we have one last question. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Or, yeah. Here we go. So, hopefully, Andrew, that'll help you. <laughs> that was a very long deep dive, but hopefully that was just for you. Um, we have a deep dive yeah. sound. Isn't it like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. All right. Well, cool. Okay. The last question comes from Scott Hazelwood, who's asking, I really like working with SAS, and I'm wondering, is there a way to reverse compile CSS into SCSS? Uh, a lot of my work has been tweaking existing sites. I'm wondering if it's possible to uh, or advisable to take existing code and turn it into SCSS uh, so that I can 
work with it that way and recompile it back into CSS? Uh, would it even be worth the trouble? Um, so the the most simple way you could do is name, <laughs> rename your file. That's step one. Uh, well, what Dave was saying is that all SCSS is is already by nature valid SCSS. They are cross compatible syntaxes. All SCSS isn't valid CSS, but CSS is valid SCSS. <laughs> but he's probably talking about like a doing auto it refactor. Like, yeah, is it like will it nest stuff for me and do all that stuff? I don't think so. And I wouldn't I, trust I, anything like that anyway. I wouldn't either because you don't know how much it's going to nest. I mean, maybe there is like a nesting setting, but, you know, that could get you into major headaches. Um, but, man, I would just rename the file and then, like, if you see something repeated twice, make a variable and then find and replace everything. Totally. That's how I, I literally, that's how I moved into using it. I did that exact same thing. And I think Paul Irish recommended this to me or has mentioned this in the past is that it's a very, it's a, it's a smooth walk into using preprocessors. You don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to deep dive. Uh, oh, you can- hold on. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to deep dive into preprocessors. You can go very light. Just rename your CSS file.scss and just, and just do little tiny things, you know? Uh, that's yeah. what we would recommend, I guess. You know, and I say that there's no tool to do it. I don't know that. I haven't even Googled it. But there is, you can go the reverse way for CoffeeScript. Have you ever seen that? It's like coffee2js.com or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's like, it'll convert your JavaScript. JS to coffee. Yeah, yeah, right. It goes the hard way, the way that you would assume that you couldn't go from regular old JavaScript into CoffeeScript. Uh, and it does it somehow. There's some secret magic there, and it's an open source project that does that. So it's not like impossible. It just seems like I, I have a feeling that it's probably a little bit easier in JavaScript because it's so specific about how things, but whereas, you know, CSS is so loosey goosey, you know, like how can you possibly interpret how people would want something nested, you know, like yeah. it's just, you have to make a lot of presumptions about how people would. So I just found one. Right, like <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, it'll do one layer of nesting, so that's kind of cool. Okay, um, it presumes you want to go one layer. Okay, um, but beyond that, and then it kind of like yeah, but and then it does uh, it, it does like uh, the ampersand, you know, uh, syntax as well. So that's cool. Like, so your A hovers and stuff like that are all set up. Uh, so that's cool. And then, but it doesn't do any color variable stuff. So you'd have to do all that by hand. But again, that's just to find and replace. So yeah, I just, it's css2sass.heroku.com. So there you go. I just, yeah, that's amazing. Backwardsly compiled my stuff. I'm going on CodePen and I'm grabbing random pens and converting them. Seeing if it works. The problem is, oh, here this is. This one's perfect. No, it's not perfect. Dang it. Anyway, it's whatever. probably just a rudimentary like, like because they have to be simple. They can't be overly complex doing that. So, yeah, those things exist, man. Um, good luck with that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Also, be careful. You're not getting yourself like if existing sites are very used to CSS. 
you might need to stick in CSS because somebody's depending on that or something. So maybe I got to go three levels deep with with nesting. Oh, really? Mm. In a really smart way too. Oh, this is nice. Wow. It doesn't do like it doesn't like do it to compass though. That would be really cool if it would be like, oh, I see you used a, a gradient here. Let me give you the proper compass syntax for that. That would be pretty sweet. Although yeah. it's it's close enough. That, and compass uses pretty much the spec anyway. This is one of those things that I wish people understood more about compass. Is like you're like, oh, I don't want to like learn this whole new syntax or whatever, right? Well. Uh, like the to use compass and pass it a gradient so that it outputs the right way. You use the spec. What you use how you would actually write a gradient anyway without compass, mm-hmm. and you just put it inside as a parameter to the background mixins. So you go include background parentheses, and then whatever you would have written anyway, and then another parentheses, and that's it. And it takes it, digests it, and spits it out in the right way. So it's like, it's not that complicated, you know? It, like, Compass does this re- cool thing where it takes the spec version of it and takes that as a parameter and then spits out the right stuff. Yep. No. I, man, you got... There's a... If you're not on the preprocessor train, I would make that your your Christmas... <laughs> to do your Thanksgiving to do when your family's passing out over turkey, <laughs> you just <laughs> learn mm-hmm. SAS. That would be my advice. Yeah, I'm so. trying to I'm trying to help people out of that a little bit. If you want to learn, if you're like you want to play with the syntax, CodePen is a nice you know just to do a little spot for myself. All the preprocessors are supported in CodePen, and it has this cool feature where you can write a little bit of SAS and then just click where it says CSS and or, or where it says SAS, and it will just flip over and show you the compiled version. It's actually a little easier than doing it in a code editor because you don't have to like open two files. You can just click back and forth between the compiled version and the in the in the authored version, and you can do this with everything. You can do it with Markdown, Hamel, Slim, SAS, SCSS, Less. Uh, we're going to put back in Jaden Stylus here pretty soon, I think. So all these coffee scripts in there too. If you want to learn it and you're just playing around with the syntax, I, I, I literally that was one of my favorite parts about building CodePen is that you can learn these syntaxes and just like click and see the output. So, oh, hashtag end of my self endorsement. Hashtag self-aggrandizing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's really cool, Chris. That was, that was, that was really cool. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, I know. You good. guys are spending so much money on my free tool. <laughs> why you know... Why you know fix my butt hurt? No, okay, here we go. So let's let's wrap it up here. Uh, thank you for tuning in to yet another rapid fire episode. And this one's probably extra long, but it was extra juicy. There, I feel very good about it. Yeah, yeah. No, I so follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show. Sub- subscribe in iTunes. Rate us a five or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Um, anything beyond that, Chris, you got anything? I just finished my order on Majingo. I'm going to go download my videos until next time. Shoptalkshow.com.